Welcome to Politically Speaking, Scotland's flagship political podcast. My name is Mandy Rhodes. I'm the editor of Hollywood Magazine. And joining me to discuss the week in politics is my award-winning writer, Liam Kirkcaldy. Join myself and Mandy, and the odd politician, of course, as we chew the political fat and spit it out on the pages of the forthcoming issue of Hollywood Magazine. We've got universities going back, we've got rent strikes, we've got young people getting angry about the fact that they're having to pay the um, pay to be at university in terms of rent, etc. And they've been sent into lockdown. This seems to me that this would be ripe um, pickings for the Labour Party, you know, young, angry people. <laughs> yes, I have this one actually. Uh, yeah. So Margaret Ferrier had a pretty bad week, I would suggest, after having been found to travel to London and back after being diagnosed with COVID. Um, various policies. There's definitely a growing discontent about the way party headquarters has been run and I think that all that has done with it is highlight that relationship that we're feeling uncomfortable with that the chief executive party is married to the party leader. So where do complaints go? Okay, so first up we have Good Week, Bad Week. That's a regular part of the show where we talk about the changing fortunes of political players in Scotland and beyond. As ever, Mandy, there's quite a few different options for Bad Week this week. I think Good Week's a little bit more stretched. I understand you have an option. Yeah, I think um, it's been a sort of good, okay week for Douglas Ross. (laughs) 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 Well, I guess if you don't make a mark when it's your own party conference, then when can you? But um, this is um, the virtual conference for the Scottish Conservatives, which some people might say is a good thing. Um, But Douglas Ross gave a very good speech and indeed has managed to basically blame the rest of his party colleagues down south for the, the, the state of the union in Scotland and the rise of nationalism. Yeah, I quite liked that speech, to be honest. I thought oh, it was quite bullshy. Yeah. It's not where I would have. Uh, it's not where I'd have done that speech personally. I wouldn't have gone to the UK Tory conference and blamed the Tories for what's going on with I nationalism. Keep reminding you, Liam, you just not, are not a party leader. I'm a coward, yeah. essentially, is the problem here. Uh, whereas Douglas Ross is a much braver man than me. Um, yeah. He went to the conference and said, "Many, including some who govern our country, want to see a UK government focused on England." That then led, um, I think it was Andrew Marr, to question. Um, Boris Johnson on his commitment to the union and forced him to say that he probably wasn't talking about him when he had to go at them. And yet everybody else is talking about Boris when they're saying the state of the union in Scotland. Yeah, I mean, I think it is, that's a pretty, it's a feeling that's been held for quite a long time, isn't it? That the this rise in support for, for independence has at least as much to do with decisions being made at the uh, UK government level as it does with the skills of the SNP in campaigning or, you know, in the Scottish government's policy successes. It does take you back to the question, though, of what's the solution to that? I mean, you know, when you go back to the leadership contest of yore, when um, of yore. Yore, when Ruth Davidson beat um, Maddo Fraser, I mean, Maddo's solution really to that was to have an independent Conservative Party in Scotland. The problem is when you're called the Conservative and Unionist Party, it's uh, a bit of a PR problem if you go yeah. independent, I guess. Yeah, it was a line in the sand, wasn't it? Yeah. Which was always quite a strange... Um metaphor I felt given sand does shift I think that one in the sand shifted quite a bit anyway it did shift yeah and particularly after the independence referendum obviously yeah so I mean I guess we could say good week for Douglas Ross he's managed to get a bit more profile and that is you know basically what he needs to do um Mm. it is the conservative party conference it is virtual but he has managed to get some headlines but I think um as we go into the bad week 
the headlines have been fairly dominated by um, one person in particular at the end of the week. <laughs> yes, I have this one actually. Uh, yeah. So Margaret Ferrier had a pretty bad week, I would suggest, after having been found to travel to London and back after being diagnosed with COVID. Yeah, I mean, absolutely unbelievable. I mean, I, I was going to say that one of the things that annoyed me throughout the weekend with the coverage was um, A, the BBC's pronunciation of her name, which was Margaret Ferrier, which um, made it sound <laughs> is that not right? <laughs> substantially more exotic than perhaps it is. Um, but also, there, there is no dissension in terms of the reaction to Margaret Ferrier um, being diagnosed with COVID and travelling on public transport up and down from um, Scotland to England. So although the headlines were dominated, there was a lot of radio and television coverage, it wasn't as if, as if there was an argument about what people felt about this. It was just absolute outrage. No, and, the, and then the SNP moved very quickly on it, which meant that a lot of the follow-up would normally be, you know, how is Nicola Sturgeon going to react? That happened almost instantly. Well, I think there still remains questions about the timing. Um, so basically, we we watched FMQs on Thursday, and we'll come on to that in a minute because it was a particularly bad week um, for Nicola Sturgeon. But we're led to believe that Nicola Sturgeon did not know about Margaret Ferrier uh, and her travel arrangements with COVID. And we're told that apparently she was told after FMQs, so that's Thursday afternoon, um, but from the timeline that we're led to believe, um, Margaret Ferrier fell ill on Saturday afternoon, had a test on the Saturday, felt a bit better or felt a lot better and decided to get on a train and go to London, I think, on the Monday. Mm-hmm. Um, then took part in a debate about COVID um, was then given the result of her test, which showed that she was positive. So she yeah. uh, had already had dinner with um, a DUP MP, but decided to get on a train and come back to Scotland. And I think there still yeah. remains issues about when did she tell the whip? When did Ian Blackford know? When was Nicola Sturgeon informed? Um, but you're right, Nicola Sturgeon then did react almost as, as soon as she knew, as we understand it, she um, reacted pretty swiftly on Twitter in her condemnation. And the width yeah. was also removed from Margaret Ferrier. So at present, yeah, the, um, Margaret Ferrier's statement says that she received a positive test on Monday evening, um, and then obviously still got a train after that. So mm-hmm. the, I mean, the yeah, the Scottish government or the First Minister's office are saying that they just assumed it was a very quick turnaround in the test when they found out. Yeah, I mean, the other thing is that social media, being social media, Margaret Ferrier had also laid a trail of what she'd also been doing over that weekend. So. Um, mm. She put pictures up of her visiting various shops, and I think she also had a meeting with the police um, about things unconnected to this. I think the police are now wishing to speak to her anyway, because obviously what she's done is is break the law. Mm. Not only it's baffling. The, the statement's quite baffling too, because at almost every stage it just gets worse. You know, yeah. there's a, there, there's five paragraphs to that statement, and at almost every one you just think, why did you do that? Mm-hmm. Then why did you do that? Yeah. Why did you keep doing all of these things? That's the problem. I mean, there is absolutely no justification whatsoever for what she did. And no matter how hard you even try to think about it, there just isn't. I mean, who on earth gets a positive test for COVID and then decides to get on public transport? 
No, it was strange. My, my initial feeling was I wondered whether she there was some vital issue that she had to attend, you know, the internal market bill or something that she felt overrided her concerns over spreading potentially spreading COVID. But no, well, it wasn't. It was a speech on COVID. It was, it was a, a speech debate on, on COVID. COVID. I think, you know, I think that's what perhaps the opposition are digging for, that there might be some kind of smoking gun. Could she have, could she have advised the whips that she wasn't feeling well, but then was still told she needed to get down there because she was speaking in a debate. I mean, I, I just don't know. And um, right now, she seems to be riding it out. Um, mm. Of course, the party can suspend her and can take the whip away from her and even kick her out of the SNP. But she, they cannot make her resign as an MP. I was a bit so. To be honest, I had I'd expected that she would have resigned over the course of the weekend. That's just what I expected. That's because you're being a sort of right-thinking type of person. Well, I wouldn't have got on the train. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I mean, I say I wouldn't. I don't think I would. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think you know whatever happens from this, it sort of topped a pretty bad week for the first minister. Yes, and that I mean that, that brings us to your column, doesn't it? Really, and then yeah. the new magazine. Uh, well, that I, I mean, we went to print last Thursday, so it was as FMQ finished. Um, but I was already writing about the committee set up by the Scottish Parliament to look into basically the bungled um, probe by the Scottish government into allegations against Alex Salmond, which um, in the end has cost taxpayers half a million pounds plus um, mm-hmm in terms of losing a judicial review that happened around that case. So the committee that was set up in the Parliament, lots of people believe that it might answer some of the questions that still hang in the air, things like, was there a conspiracy to get Alex Hammond? Um, You know, lots of questions. I mean, I suppose my view had always been that the committee inquiry was unlikely to answer all of the questions that people still have hanging but it was quite a remarkable state of affairs when Linda Fabiani, who is an SNP MSP, who very respected in the party, um, well-loved, deputy presiding officer, um, former government minister. So she has worked for both Alex Salmond and Nicola Sturgeon um, in government. And she basically said that the committee couldn't carry on with the work because Nicola Sturgeon, Alex Salmon, Scottish Government, Peter Murrell, who happens to be married to Nicola Sturgeon, but is also the chief executive of the SNP, were basically obstructing the work of the committee by not presenting them with materials that they had asked for. Yeah, I mean, you, the, the, you can see the committee becoming increasingly frustrated. It's actually, I mean, it's a slightly difficult one to cover in a way, because we've had the same expression of frustration from Linda Fabiani maybe three or four times now. And so what, I mean, it's at first the, the committee's frustrated by the kind of obstinacy of some of the people they're dealing with. Then they're really frustrated. Now they're just still really frustrated. Nothing really has changed there. They set a deadline for, you know, towards the end of September for all these documents. They didn't get them. Yeah. And now they're saying basically they can't move forward. Of course, the other thing that happened in Parliament because of that was that Oliver Mondale, um, Tory MSP, accused Nicola Sturgeon of being a liar in the parliament for which he was thrown out of the parliament but basically he was saying that Nicola Sturgeon had said back in January that she would provide anything that the committee wanted that there was nothing to hide basically Um, and yet here we are in a situation where the committee is not receiving everything it is asked for. Meanwhile Nicola Sturgeon said in FMQs that she had provided everything that um, had been asked of her 
So there's a real disconnect. But I think what it did for me was highlight the very incestuous, if you like, relationships at the very top of our governance and mm. why we should be concerned about that. You know, so Nicola Sturgeon is the First Minister of Scotland. She's also the party leader of the SNP. She's married to the chief executive of the party. Alex Salmond used to be her boss. She was his deputy. All of these things are connected. And we've also got the bizarre situation where a former Justice Secretary, Penny McCaskill, who is now an MP, he apparently received in the post uh, various copies of WhatsApp messages um, purportedly written by um, Peter Morrow. We are yet to know if that's the case or not, which were basically trying to encourage people to put pressure on the police around Salmond. And McCaskill, former Justice Secretary, as I say, could now find himself potentially under investigation for handling leaked material. We then also understand that the SNP have called in lawyers to be able to represent them or to make sure that what they provide to the committee is legally correct. And presumably that's membership funds um, that are being used for that. Penny McCaskill mm. is a member. Yeah, it's a, it's a really bizarre spectacle to see an SNP MP putting that out about his own party, you know? It shows obviously yeah. how strongly he feels on it. But... Uh, and also some of this, you know, inevitably becomes a proxy for some of the commentary that has been written around uh, Salmon versus uh, Sturgeon, mm-hmm. um, various policies. There's definitely a growing discontent about the way party headquarters has been run. And I think that all that has done with this is highlight that relationship that people are feeling uncomfortable with, that the chief executive of the party is married to the party leader. So where do complaints mm. go? I mean, is, is this though? Is this a consequence of the party growing so much in quite a small space of time, really? Well, um, potentially. Because you know, like, obviously, yeah. these people do all know each other. Some of them are married to each other, but you know, like all these, all the cabinet secretaries. When you speak to them, you find out that they have all known each other for decades. They all worked for each other in the past in different ways, and you know, like the idea that they're struggling with concerns in the membership or not dealing with complaints properly again is possibly just the fact that their membership is so much bigger and they maybe haven't adapted. Well, potentially, but governance is a really important thing. And I mean, one of the Mm. things that I've mentioned in my column is that I do remember way back uh, when Nicola Sturgeon became the party leader, when Alex stepped down in 2014 after the referendum, there were questions at that point raised about was it appropriate for the chief executive of the party to be be married to the party leader. And I have to say, at the time that I, lots of people close to um, Nicola Sturgeon were asking me about that. And at the time, I felt that she was right. That, you you know, how could you, it seemed wrong to say that she should sack her husband from this job because it wasn't, it didn't appear right. The perception wasn't right. And, you know, when the question is posed in such a way or framed in such a way that you think it sounds sexist, I guess a little naively, I thought, yeah, that's it, it's wrong that somebody should lose their job just because someone else has been um, promoted into a, a leadership position. But I think we've got to that point. I think those fears were were founded in what could happen, what the consequences could be of that. Um, and, you know, this is not a good look at the moment. And, and mm. it, frankly, you know, people that have not believed that there could be any kind of conspiracy and laughed at the idea that there could be a cons- conspiracy against Salmond are now questioning that. Mm. 
It's, it's interesting. I mean, I suppose it sort of brings us back to Douglas Ross in a way, but, you know, there was a time when He's not parties used to... Well, no, but they used to, you know, they, they used to cause each other problems. Now yeah. political parties are just all standing around causing themselves problems. You yeah. know, the SNP's biggest problem at the moment is the SNP. Douglas Ross is warning that the future of the union's in doubt because of its biggest, well, apparently its strongest proponents. Yeah. That's before we even talk about the Labour Party. <laughs> I've forgotten, yeah. Well, there is, there's a very good piece on the future of the Labour Party in the next issue of the magazine. There is, yeah. A really interesting piece by Ellen uh, Beaton, who basically was saying, we were talking about the future of the Labour Party, and he said, you know, it'd be interesting to look at what young people are saying. I mean, you know, here we are, going, got universities going back, we've got rent strikes, we've got young people getting angry about the fact that they're having to pay the um, pay to be at university in terms of rent etc and mm. they've been sent into lockdown this seems to me that this would be ripe um, pickings for the Labour Party you know young angry people so mm. Ellen's done a piece on that but actually I think I think the conclusion was and that was backed up by things that John Curtis was saying to Ellen was that actually there appears to be, if children are the future, Liam, <laughs> then there appears to be little future. <laughs> That's quite dark. <laughs> if, yes. One of those weeks, one of those weeks. Yeah. Well, the rest of the magazine um, has a focus on connectivity and digital, of course. Um, yeah. I think there was, there was a really interesting piece um, written by Louise Wilson on connecting Scotland on the attempts to try and, you know, drive out... Um, Wi-Fi access yeah. as part of it, she says, um, around 88% of Scotland is connected to the internet, um, which obviously means that about 12% isn't, which really is, you know, it's about 300,000 uh, households yeah. that don't have access to the internet at the moment. Um, and they're all people, and, uh, people that suffer all kinds of inequalities anyway. Yeah, it's exactly as you'd expect, really, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so it's, yeah, about a third of households with an annual income of £10,000 or less have no internet access at yeah. home. Um, and you also find that places will, or people will have um, have access to the internet, but might only have one smartphone to share between a family. And a horrible bit in Louise's piece, you know, that evidence of kids uh, that were having to use a phone, basically, to do their schoolwork, because that was the only access they had. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, there's, there's obviously a huge drive to distribute more equipment, but lockdown does make that difficult. Um, and I suppose, yeah, that's the one thing, really, that... that the lockdown is driven home, isn't it? Is the importance of connectivity because people just it's a fundamental right now. You know, people people reacted in a funny way when um when Labour looked at rolling out broadband access. You know, as like a bit of public service. Really? Well, I mean, it wasn't it wasn't as good a policy as the owls, was it? Yeah. It's, not, it's been very few. I mean, just I don't want to talk about the owls again. All right, we won't talk about the owls. We've done it. The owls. There's a really good interview as well in the magazine with um, Ben McPherson. Um, minister who has that responsibility I mean basically digital is split between Kate Forbes and and Ben Um, yeah it's a funny brief isn't it it's sort of it's not entirely his but there's um it's very much a profile piece of Ben and I think one of the things that jumped out to me was he's a fifth generation vegetarian a fifth generation vegetarian on his mother's side he's he has never ever eaten fish or uh, meat wow has he never been tempted? I don't know. I don't know if um, if Rebecca asked him that. Yeah, I would see. I just I just assumed that people would be probably at most a first generation vegetarian. I don't know why I thought that. Was it first depends on the reason. Amazing. Mm. 
And the other thing, um, because the tech sector, I mean, one of the reasons, obviously, that the magazine is focused on the tech sector is tech sector has been named as key to our economic recovery. Um, mm. And Jenny's done an interview with Jane. Uh, well, there was an interview with Jane Morrison-Ross in the piece uh, that Jenny has written about the tech sector and the way that it will take Scotland through or hopefully into a recovery. And I mm. think we're going to hear an interview with Jane. She's the new CEO of Scotland IS, which is the technology industry body. So I think we're going to hear that now. We are what's happening in the sector, um, you know, what's the government doing, what are sort of, you know, some of the, the key priorities, things like that. So I thought it would be great to talk to you just about the, the sort of general state of I guess the sector really is we're sort of coming out of the COVID crisis and into recovery. It seems. It seems. I know. Yes. Uh, it, it's difficult to uh, predict where we're going to be. Yeah, um, we seem to be going backwards a little bit. <laughs> I know. I think, uh, well, I mean, you'll, you'll have all of the usual, you know, the, the sector is worth 7.5 billion to Scottish GDP every year and we employ 100,000 people. Um, where we are at the moment is actually in a more positive position than the majority of other sectors. Uh, we set up a cross-sector steering group as well during well, a few months ago now, but we've been working with um, energy, food and drink, Scotch whisky, travel, transport, and a, a number of other sectors to, to understand more about the issues across um, the landscape. And something that has become really clear is the majority of other sectors are suffering quite a lot more, but they all recognise that digital technology is really important in helping them to recover. Um, and future fit to protect them from you know anything like this happening again. So in general, our industry is really positive. It's still buoyant. The majority of companies are still growing. Um, we were around 64%. We're saying that they have or are planning to recruit before the end of the year. 73%, um, I think, and I will double check that, um, we're predicting growth by year end profitability growth. Not so many in our sector have made staff redundant um, during the, the sort of crisis, you know, particularly in the, the midst of the, the worst of it. I think 21% had um, or planned to make staff redundant at that point. So not all had, but comparatively to other sectors, again, um, it was pretty low. A number did take advantage of the furlough scheme, but the majority of them did it as a precautionary measure rather than a, they had to because they were teetering on the brink. So I think the one thing the crisis did do was highlight the need for other companies and organisations to make better use of digital technology. So for companies that were supplying any solutions, um, either in response to COVID or in response to the needs of other companies to keep going through COVID, for a lot of them, their sales actually increased. So <clears throat> it's, uh, yes, we, we are fortunate and it has been a lot more positive. I think the engagement with government has helped enormously. The the early stage, you know, when, when no one left behind now Connecting Scotland started, industry responded really well. Um, and I think that there was something around that focus from a very early stage around collaboration and the sort of tech for good piece that I think changed the mood for our industry. It kept it kept us all focused on doing something constructive and positive. 
Um, and I think seeing tangible results and Scottish Government commitment on the back of that has has been a huge help. And it helped, I think, to spark things like the Scottish Tech Army, um, where we've seen a massive number of people come together to help third sector and public sector you know, charities um, through the, the situation and the crisis. Um, and then we, we, as you know, we, we launched the Digital Nation Challenge um, with Colin Cook and with the Digital Directorate. Um, and I think, again, that, that sort of initiative, something tangible that opened real channels um, for communication, but more than that, real channels for industry to tell the government what they thought needed to happen um, to enable Scotland digitally has been, the feedback we've had from that is hugely positive. There will be more coming out on the back of that um, in early October, but I think we can say that the feedback we've had from the Scottish Government has been hugely positive and the digital nation um, respondents have helped to shape the new digital strategy for Scotland. Right, that's all a lot more positive than, than I would have expected. So actually, in some ways, there's been an opportunity that has come out of this for a conversation that there might not have been before or dialogue there might not have been before. Yes, I think I think absolutely. I mean, you know, it, it's difficult because we, we, we absolutely recognise how painful um, and, and awful this this has been for a number of other sectors and we recognise you know the seriousness of the job losses and things but our sector has been really flip and resilient um, and I think there have been opportunities because the, the tech has been an enabler um, you know there's a lot of companies pivoted to help with the supply chain around PPE and things like that or to help with apps for health and social care or home care um, there were a lot of companies offering solutions for free and we set up the business hub in the early days and there were a lot of, I mean, hundreds of companies in Scotland offering their products and services for free to other companies in Scotland who weren't in the tech sector. So we really did. We saw a lot of, of altruism in the early stages too, a lot of kind of recognition that to get through this, we all needed to collaborate, support each other. And that mood didn't this disappear uh, and I think that's been a hugely positive thing to say we, we often I mean I, I find myself talking with other um, organizations based in other parts of the UK or, or internationally and quite often we talk about the culture in Scotland being a little bit different the, the culture being quite um, collaborative and open to partnerships and open to doing things a little bit differently and I think we really did see that over the last few months um, you know, we sort of we, we saw the proof that actually what we talk about is, is true. <laughs> I think we we did. You know, the companies in our industry that were hit hardest were companies that supply to retail, for instance. So you know, the, the smaller number of kind of specialist companies that build websites or e-commerce functionality for um, retail industry. Um, initially, they were hit quite hard because the supply chain just fractured. You know, the retailers weren't selling, they weren't getting money and they were still paying their rents, they were still paying their staff. I think that started to even out and then on the, the back end of that, there were more opportunities, more, more and more um, retailers looked at, you know, actually selling properly online and looked at e-commerce as a potential solution. And I think, you know, the e-commerce e market in the UK is huge. Um, as the Institute of E-Commerce like to um, show. But the predicted increase in e-commerce post-COVID, I think, is 
Wow. That, so you're expecting a recovery in that area, even though that's been an area that's been hard hit at the moment? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, an awful lot of businesses have changed their model. So they are doing much more online. And it's not just in the, you know, the kind of high street shops. There's been a lot of small, really small, the smallest of the SMEs changing their business model. You know, whether they're they're a, a candle shop in a synth that's now trading online very successfully or um, Har restaurant with the Scottish MasterChef finalist. You know, he, they're doing extremely well selling um, lobster and seafood boxes that they deliver to people's houses. So there's a lot of ingenuity gone into how businesses are, are transforming um, to recover. Yeah, and another area of um, transformation, probably the most obvious one, has been remote working. And that's something that's happened very suddenly. I think a lot of companies weren't really ready for it and just had to kind of pivot and put that in place. Have you really noticed um, growth in, in that part of the sector and, and are there more opportunities coming up for that? Yes, I think absolutely. Um, we've seen, well, I mean, I think all, particularly in Scotland, everybody has been working from home and those that can still are. A um, number of companies I've spoken to are talking about not going back physically to their offices till March next year at the earliest. Um, what we have also heard, which may cause trouble in the rental sector a number of companies are looking at either downsizing their office space or changing their physical office space model um, so keeping some kind of central point that they can all meet but you know going from 300 seats down to 100 um, yeah. because we have recognized that people are incredibly productive working from home as long as they've got uh, the infrastructure and the tech there to help them. So I think we've, we've seen a big increase in opportunities for companies that, that set up those services, everything from connectivity through to um, enabling software, even things like CRM systems and you know using databases and things differently to help companies track um, all of their business online. Some, some of it's very simple, some of it's the basic building blocks that maybe some companies haven't quite got round to, you know, databases, procurement systems, payment systems, um, online payments, even that sort of thing. And then making sure staff have got the right equipment so everybody can use Skype or Teams or Zoom or, you know, whichever other platforms are available, whichever suits their, their business model. And then the staff training on the back of that. I think one of the things that was really positive was the recognition from a huge amount of companies that, you know, giving people a laptop and telling them to get on with it wasn't enough. So I, a lot of companies seem to put quite a lot of thought and support in from the fairly early stages of the crisis into staff um, training to use the new technology and channels, but also staff well-being and how they communicated with their teams and their staff. We ran quite a lot of roundtables um, and webinars to provide support and a lot of other organisations, business organisations did too. Um, and that was quite heartening to see that people were thinking about it from you know, a, a, a rounded position. And the sector itself has been named as um, key for growth after coronavirus, key for the recovery. Um, is that a lot of pressure to put on, on you as sort of one sector is almost being, you know, the one area of hope? I don't. The general mood, I think, is very much, you know, I've got a mental image of people rolling up their sleeves and saying, right, let's get on with it then. Um, and that seems to be the mood, you know, the 
organizations are rising to the challenges, um, whether it's companies that are specializing in digital health and med tech that are you know, deeply involved in how we build on this situation and put better uh, processes and solutions in place so that we can manage anything like this better in the future. There's a lot of buoyancy. We're seeing a huge amount of growth in areas like space tech um, and climate geospatial technology. Now, I was talking at something yesterday and I think people were incredibly surprised to hear that Glasgow builds more satellites than any other UK uh, EU city. Um, but there's a whole industry around that that's incredibly exciting. The geospatial work that's going on is really leading the field in Scotland as well. Um, and I, I think they're kind of well-kept secrets that, that people don't yet know that space tech and climate tech in Scotland are actually ahead of lots of other countries. Um, GovTech's another really key emerging sector. And I think, you know, when you, when you think the government spends around 877 million a year, it's always been a hugely important one for SMEs. And I think there's real appetite um, from companies to engage and communicate more with the government and public sector. Uh, I hate to use the hashtag, but you know that build back better one? Yeah. There's a real enthusiasm for being heard and contributing to how we do that. Um, and there's a real appetite from smaller companies, I mean, right through to the global ones, but from the smaller companies to engage and do that. And then there's there's been, there's been innovation happening in all of those areas, you know, whether it's through CivTech or um, the Digital Nation Challenge throughout the crisis. And then there was the launch of the Online Safety Technology Industry Association. I hope I got that right, Austria. Um, so in cybersecurity and the online safety tech world, there's masses of innovation quietly happening in Scotland. Um, and it's been even more important over the last few months because of the increase in phishing and hacking and because of all the children, you know, moving to online education, there's a much greater need for that online safety um, protection piece as well. So I think, I think I would say that industry is and has risen to the challenge and is still innovating you know, even in the face of the, the crisis over the last few months. And if anything, ha I've started to innovate in a more accelerated way in response to the situation. Oh, that, that's all very positive. And um, the recent technology ecosystem review was, was quite broad and was quite positive in terms of the, the future of the industry. Obviously, it was kind of, it came out of the idea of recovery, but it's actually, it's much broader and really is about the, the future of the, the sector. I presume you were involved in um, discussions ahead of the, the report, but were you happy with what it said and, and did you agree with the priorities? Yes, I mean, I think I think broadly, yes, absolutely. And, and we were involved in the consultation process um, and in the follow-up. And I think we were incredibly welcoming of the review in the first place that the Scottish Government were putting that priority on the industry and the potential for the industry um, to help you know, drive economic recovery is fantastic. It's great to see it mapped out in a way that shows both the strengths and the weaknesses. And you know, Scotland has been active in the skills sector, the education sector for a long time. So having the, the recognition that we need to make this key from primary school right through to university degrees to upskilling and reskilling um, was fantastic. I think we we did feedback that we thought um, you know, the, the college sector in Scotland has enormous potential to provide a national network, a national digital skills hub that can accelerate 
Um, and I think that's been taken on board and certainly the conversations are still happening. Um, we've been delivering with UHI some free digital skills courses targeted at people who are unemployed. There's a lot of good initiatives on delivering courses and upskilling and reskilling. Um, and I think they're all really important components. The Tech Scalers Network we're very excited about. Um, it is an area that our members have been telling us for a number of years that you know there wasn't enough support at a national level. And, and again, one of the things that we fed back was that we would love to see that truly national. And, and since it's going to have to be virtual, the potential is there to do that in a really innovative way. But if it's used properly, then we should be able to encourage new starts and entrepreneurs from you know Shetland to Stornoway to Stranraer. Um, and that could really support economic regeneration and stop depopulation and encourage repopulation. You know, we, we all know people that would love to go and live in Sutherland or <laughs> Harris. Um, and if they were able to tap into that kind of network, they could be doing it in a way that would bring employment um, locally too. So, yeah, no, I think it's really exciting. And I think Mark has done a fantastic job in a very short time. Yeah, yeah. And the government's obviously preparing its next digital strategy. What would you see as the, the priorities for that? What would you like to see in it? I think what, what, what we would like to see um, is the engagement with industry feeding in to shape the digital strategy. And certainly from talking to the digital economy and digital directorates, I think that's happening in a way that's probably not happened to the extent it is now before um we would be very keen to see an approach that was national that looked at everything from enabling infrastructure through to emerging technologies one of the things that we we fed back on the back of the higgins report was um well apart from you know why we were very supportive was that we felt there wasn't enough emphasis on smes which you know, are really the powerhouse of the Scottish economy, but also on enabling technologies like IoT and 5G um, and the importance of harnessing those properly as well as the space tech, the climate tech, the gov tech. Um, so I think what we hope we will see in that digital strategy is something that encompasses emerging technology as well as the building blocks and infrastructure um, and that takes into account that engagement with industry. Um, and looks ahead for ways that we can use the technology to reduce the impact of climate change as well. Um, because I think most things have to look, look through that lens too. Yeah, yeah. That's lovely, James. Is there anything we've not covered that you wanted to say? No, I think that's great. I think the only other thing I'd say on the digital strategy is that from the little hints that I'm hearing at the moment, we are very um, excited about this year's I think it's going to be. Um, I think it's going to be quite a good one. If I could, <laughs> don't quote me. Don't, don't say that. Quite a good one. That sounds dreadful. But I think this year's is going to be a very interesting and well thought out digital strategy for Scotland. So we're quite excited um, and hopeful about that. that. Yeah, that sounds positive. I mean, I'm going to take a look at the last one actually and try and see if I can see kind of what's been achieved out of that because it's a while since I took a, a look at that. So it's. Um, yeah, it's going to be interesting. Obviously, there's been a lot has happened since then, a lot of change since then. Massive amount. I think you know the, the Connecting Scotland program probably shows that in a microcosm. And I think, I think Kat McCauley, the Chief Design Officer, is amazing. She's a, a force of nature. But what what's been achieved with that program in six months normally would have taken I don't know five years if you were lucky. 
So the pace of change really has picked up in unprecedented ways. And it's not easy, you know, there, there's, when you're, when you're in the public sector, it's much more difficult to accelerate than it is in the private sector because of all the safeguards and the checks that need to be in place. So I think what that team has done is phenomenal. Yeah, it, it is amazing how quickly that's turned around because yes, the public sector is it's quite lumbering, isn't it? Very often. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's challenging, isn't it? Because you know there there have to be the there has to be governance in place, but when when the response has to be you know really fast, it can be difficult um, to do it while while doing all of the things you have to do. But I think the team have done that. Yeah. Um, it's probably a, a great case study in there for the rest of us. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that has, you know, if there's positives that have come out of the virus, I think it's it's that innovation and perhaps letting the fear go of just going ahead and doing things and trying them and see what happens. Yeah, I think that's a really good way of looking at it. Um, you know, we're sort of forced to innovate, so you, the, the fear, the fear gets put to one side, and I think that's a really good thing. You know, we we try and we fail, then we try again and we get it right the next time, hopefully. But you know, you don't succeed without some failure along the way. Yeah, yeah, which is is very much part of your sector, but perhaps not so much of the as the public sector. Yes, yeah, that's true. No, I think I mean I think generally we are in a positive place, and there's lots of. There's lots of things happening out in the, the sort of wide, wider world as well. I was on a um, CMA thing yesterday, the the oh, Competitions and Market Authority. Oh. And they were talking about the potential for a regulatory framework um, to help drive competition in digital marketplaces. And it's a huge report. So luckily, one of their experts was summarising it. But really what it boiled down to is one of the lawyers on the call said was it was going from a, a Wild West wonderland to smart regulation to support competition and innovation. Um, and I really liked that. And I think there's there's lots of bits coming in like that, like the Scottish government's attention to the whole data sovereignty thing um, that really supports where industry is going to go next. But, Aside from the fact that we're in the middle of a global pandemic, a lot of it's quite exciting. Great, that's that's ideal for me, Jane. That that covers everything I wanted to cover. So thanks very much for your time. Thank you very much. It was lovely to talk to you. Okay, now it's time for Mandy's rant of the week. That's a chance for her to get something off her chest that's been bothering her. Mandy, is there anything that's been irritating you this week? Well, yeah, I suppose the thing that uh, been, I've been ranting about all weekend, actually, um, so I might as well share with you, is is Trump testing positive? Or as he might say, testing positively positive. Um, bigly positive. The most positive that any president could ever be in terms of being positive. Um, I mean, it was kind of an accident waiting to happen, really. Uh, he was a president that laughed at people for wearing face masks, that... Um, keeps referring to this as the Chinese virus. Um, he was close to people all the time and has now tested positive. And yeah. in very Trump fashion, although he's been taken into hospital, we then saw him, um, I guess it would be the early hours of this morning for us, him in a motor car, in a motorcade, doing a procession, waving at everybody. Um, I mean, who on earth? agrees to get in a car with him and um, they, they only do it because he's the president i just you know i i feel that what we're going to get out of this is the president will be fine um and therefore 
we should all be fine about this virus. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. That's actually kind of more dangerous than I had considered. I mean, it is, yeah, it's his COVID ratings are obviously through the roof, so that's positive for him. Um, I guess you've got to question how he, how he ended up getting COVID, given he um, he did basically follow no guidance whatsoever. And it does follow Bolsonaro as well in Brazil, uh, catching COVID after having pretty much taken the same tact of refusing to wear a mask, refusing to... I mean, he was, he was going out and shaking hands at mass rallies, and then it's no surprise to find out that he has COVID. But I suppose Trump will be getting the best possible medical care. And that's the whole point, isn't it? Here's a, here's a president who has talked about the fact... talked in a way about this virus as if it's nothing. And yet we've got thousands and thousands of Americans dying who have no access to um, good healthcare because of him. And he's now in the presidential suite of a hospital, getting mm. all the best care possible. Well, it's also led to a kind of a, a slew of conspiracy theories that this is a move aimed at trying to delay the election. I'm not yeah. sure that timeline would really work out, to be honest. No. Um, but I suppose you can see why people have doubts. Well, we've had all the conspiracy theories even about he it's a body double that has gone into hospital. It was a body double in the car. Poor Melania, I'm sure she's wishing there was a body double. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I don't know what I mean for the next debate. I think the timeline of that is also it's far enough away that you'd assume that he probably won't have coronavirus by that point, assuming he recovers okay. But then, you know, you saw from Boris Johnson as well that it takes a it, it does take a really long time for some people to kick that. Just mm -hmm. you know, once you've once you've got rid of the virus, does not mean that you're feeling well. So you wonder if you're going to be able to take part in a in a campaign properly. And you, you remember how he reacted to Hillary Clinton when she was diagnosed? I think she was diagnosed with pneumonia in the yeah. end. I th do you know, I think, the thing, I mean, obviously, you don't wish anyone to be ill, and we don't. Um, and I think the next 10 days are going to be quite crucial as well, because um, he could feel okay at the moment and then not be very well at all. But yeah. I, I suppose I just really worry about the whole idea of these, these kind of strong men, strong men tactics, that they get a virus, they're going to be fine, and therefore everybody else should be. Yeah, I mean, footage came out recently as well of, of Angela Merkel, who has not um, has not caught COVID, enforcing social distancing guidelines, which I suppose is exactly the sort of thing that you're you're getting at there. Mm -hmm. You know, like someone who's actually followed the evidence. She's got a scientific background anyway, but you know, she, the, the footage shows her basically driving people back and saying, "No, no, 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 don't come over and try and give me a handshake mm -hmm. or whatever." And it goes back to that whole issue of have women leaders been um, the best? in this, in, in, you know, not necessarily, as we know in Scotland, in terms of the consequences, but just in terms of common sense and, and dealing with this problem and talking more reasonably about what you should and shouldn't do. Yeah, I suppose there's, it depends. I, mean, I think there probably is evidence that countries that are led by female leaders are have probably responded slightly better. I suppose you could question whether it's the underlying factors that allow them to respond well to a pandemic or also the factors that might mean that they're more amenable to electing a woman leader. Yeah. You know, it might be that people people with more equal societies are better able to respond to COVID and more equal societies are more likely to elect female leaders. Yeah, I think you know the, the same things that we saw with Boris Johnson, that we saw with Trump about laughing at people wearing face masks, confused messages about face masks, whether or not you should shake hands with people. Um, it's a same kind of just bloody-minded approach to something that is an illness, that is a virus. Um, well, it's a celebration of stupidity. <laughs> it is a celebration of stupidity, yeah. And politicians should do something about that. 
So they say a week is a long time in politics, and you've just heard a fraction of that condensed into today's Politically Speaking podcast. I hope we've enlightened and entertained, and the next time you hear someone say they're not interested in politics, remember you know a podcast that can help them with that. If you enjoyed this episode of Politically Speaking from Hollywood Magazine and the chat between Liam and I, remember to subscribe and leave a review and tell your friends to subscribe too. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Also remember to check out our fortnightly release of Hollywood Magazine, available in print or online at hollywood.com. Bye for now.